Okay, everyone, thanks for joining me this evening and, uh, and the rest of the panel here and, uh, and coming to the glorious consensus offices. I know it's an absolute privilege for all of us uh, to have you here. So without further ado, let's introduce or let's go round the, uh, the panel and, uh, and you guys can introduce yourselves. Great. Thanks, Arthur. Uh, I'm Chris Berniski. I'm Blockchain Products Lead at ARK Invest. ARK is an investment manager, uh, and we were actually the first public investment manager to invest in Bitcoin. Uh, we are generally long, uh, permissionless blockchains, uh, which I hope we get to talk about today. Hi, Michael Wheeler. I work at Consensus here, so this is our home office. I run the Infura project, which is a public high transaction throughput uh, Ethereum and IPFS gateway. Uh, Richard Johnson, I am a blockchain research analyst at Greenwich Associates. Um, been, doing, been in the blockchain space about two years. Prior to that, I worked in, uh, in capital markets, um, but uh, moved over, as I said, a couple of years ago. Got here via Bitcoin to blockchain. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Ron Quaranta. I am the chairman of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance. I've been in financial services for about 26 years or so. Prior to my current role, uh, I was the chief executive, chief executive officer of a company called Derivatrust, which was in swap execution facilities. Um, and I got into blockchain, I want to say about four years ago, on advice and conversations with a lot of my customers and colleagues, primarily so I can stop wearing ties. Good place to start. So what, have, what are each of your respective uh, organizations, uh, what are they pursuing in, uh, in blockchain today and what's your role in that, uh, in that pursuit? So uh, as I said, so ARK is a registered investment advisor and so we have exchange traded funds, ETFs and separately managed accounts. And so what we're looking to do is to invest in cryptocurrencies. Uh, but given the position we're in, we're not actually able to touch Bitcoin or to touch Ether. Uh, it's really frustrating. Um, and so we either have to wait for securitized versions of those cryptocurrencies to come to us. Uh, so for example, Grayscale has the Bitcoin Investment Trust, um, which allows us to put Bitcoin into an ETF. Um, there's not yet that for Ether, but I think there will be. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's the Winklevoss twins and there's SolidX uh, pursuing the ETF. Um, there are many avenues to securitize these different assets. Um, it's a bit of a bastardization. You know, you're, you're, you're stuffing the new world into the, the old world wrapper, so to speak. Um, but it also opens up a, a larger capital base uh, to these assets, and that can build in a lot of stability, hopefully, over time. Um, and so at ARC, I'm focused on researching these cryptocurrencies and then the business development side of securitizing them. Sure, so I work with consensus, but I think in the Wall Street uh, for Blockchain Conference, I'm going to be demonstrating Infura. So Infura is a particular spoke of consensus. If you're not familiar with consensus, it's a hub and spoke uh, production, venture production studio. Um, the Consensus Hub is in the business of promoting and, and incubating um, spoke projects, primarily in the Ethereum blockchain. So what uh, Infura is, is a platform uh, of infrastructure 
that all of the other spokes initially of consensus leveraged to interface with the Ethereum blockchain in a reliable and a, a predictable and highly fault tolerant manner. Um, and we're opening that up as well to the public Ethereum network uh, and also developing it as a private, uh, private chain solution that can be deployed for POCs within enterprise as well. So that's my current role. Um, so Greenwich Associates is a, uh, a fairly traditional uh, Wall Street consulting company. We've been around about 40 years. Um, and essentially what we do is we talk to investors and brokers across all different asset classes. And uh, we help people understand the market, whether it's FX, equities, uh, fixed income, loans, uh, payments, all these different areas. Uh, my group's a little bit different. It's called the Market Structure and Technology Group. So what we do is we look at um, technology changes, regulatory changes, anything that's affecting markets, that's affecting how people can buy and sell things. Uh, and, we, and, we, and we write about that, and we do custom research for our clients on that. So what... Um, what I'm able to do is kind of leverage the existing network we have of a lot of all the, whether they're syndicated loans traders or, or, or banking executives working on payments, um, and talk to these guys and, uh, and, and kind of help our clients understand, well, okay, if, we're, if we want to deliver blockchain to this market, the people who are going to be using it, what do they think? What are, the, what are their pain points? What should we address first? You know, should we address cross-border transactions or remittances? Um, and so forth. So that's, um, that's what I'm doing at Greenwich. So my world's a bit different. So the WSBA is a, a nonprofit. It's a trade association. And, and we took this approach that basically said one of the challenges for financial markets was what we call advocacy and knowledge and information. We're not creating a particular blockchain implementation or even a particular product. We do speak to all of those vendors and providers who do, but we try to take a, a look from the needs of our members. And our members are banks, broker-dealers, hedge funds, insurance companies, the, the gamut of participants in financial markets. Um, so from the technology perspective, it's helping them understand its impact across use cases. More broadly, it's helping our members sell the story upstairs, as I often call it. There's still this lack of full understanding at what I would call the executive ranks. Everyone's interested in blockchain at the executive level. Every bank and every broker dealer has a team dedicated to it. But what does it really mean for the future of their business? The permissionless version versus permissioned conversation that Chris, you and I have often is still a conversation that financial markets are trying to understand. Um, so that's what we do. We advocate from that perspective. We try to educate um, from the perspective of our certification framework. And it's not just the technology. I'm not a technologist, but I'm smart enough to ask really dumb questions of technologists. And what we're finding is there's so much information out there that members need to cut through the noise. What are the things they need to focus on, not the, the hype of some of the things that are happening, but more around how do we really use it? How, do we, how does it ma matter for our particular businesses? How does it matter? Staying with me. <laughs> um, it, it matters in a couple of ways. It, it matters um, at a very fundamental level. What it's caused many members and, and many of my colleagues in financial services to do is fundamentally think about how they do what they do. So there's these long-standing questions around clearing and settlement. And in the early days of blockchain, um, from the financial markets perspective, it was equities are going to be issued on a blockchain and, and to heck with the Fed. And um, all of these things that are that fundamentally misunderstood what was really important to understand. 
And so now the questions that they're asking, even at the, what I'll call the product and business level, are what are the pain points? What are the friction points? It's not enough to say this is a really intriguing technology, really good stuff. That's fine. Betamax was a really intriguing technology. But it becomes a matter of how do we do what we do and how does blockchain fit as we try to evolve some of that? And those are tough conversations. Right now, if you talk to most broker-dealers, most hedge funds, what they do kind of works. So it's kind of this uphill battle around helping them understand on a cost basis, where are things able to get better because of blockchain on a security basis, on a throughput basis, on an immutability basis, and then evolve that conversation to say, in the future, the world may look like this. And what is, that th what is the this? What does that mean? How does the revenue for financial services change? How do the participants in financial markets change? I think one of the areas is in the expenses as well from banks. I think uh, with the regulation, Dodd-Frank and uh, everything that the, fi the large financial service uh, uh, firms are facing right now, uh, I came from Bank of America prior to consensus. I spent a decade there. Um, the ability to generate the top line of revenue kind of was disappearing in these banks, and they really were starting to look at the expenses and how can we squeeze more with less, and I think that's one thing that would hopefully become something that they're looking at with blockchain. And, and look at margins. Margins across the entirety of financial services are, across most products, relatively razor thin. If there's some differentiator that's powered by blockchain over time, that's going to be something financial markets need. And so coming at it from the asset manager perspective, um, I would actually credit some of this uh, thesis thought leadership uh, to Union Square Ventures. Joel Monegro there uh, wrote a great blog post uh, called Fat Protocols, Thin Applications. Um, and, you know, when you look at sort of the traditional asset manager space, um, that relies on the traditional flow of capital. You know, you start with your seed funding, venture funding, company grows at IPOs, um, you know, then you can put it into your ETFs or mutual funds or whatever it may be. Um, what we're seeing now, um, and consensus being a hotbed for this, is the idea of the ICO. I think it's dangerous to say the initial coin offering, but I'll say it. Um, but this idea of sourcing capital in a decentralized way so quickly, um, you're leapfrogging much of the capital market infrastructure. Um, and as an uh, asset manager in the public space, you know, if we're not attuned to that, uh, we're, we're not going to get disrupted next year or the year after that, or maybe even five years, but ten years, maybe. Um, so, so, so that's w one side that I'm thinking about it from. The other side is this idea of digitization, right? Um, I think I've talked about this with a, a few of you, actually, is this idea we've electronified thus far. You know, we've gone from uh, the, uh, the written letter to the fax machine, but we haven't quite gotten to the email or the text message with finance. Um, and that requires digitizing assets. Um, and then uh, the, the term they use in the space is dematerializing and then securely being able to transfer them. Um, so those two things for me. I, I, picking up on that last point, I, uh, I very much agree on the digitization. I think for, for, to really have the true benefits of blockchain or, or DLT, the assets need to be digitized, um, which is what Bitcoin is, which is what Ether is. Um, but what we're seeing uh, in the space is a, a lot of people are taking blockchain and take, or taking the, the distributed ledgers and using it as a post-trade only solution. Um, I think maybe that's an okay way to, to, to kind of for people to get started. And of course, you know, ripping out the whole U.S. equities market and digitizing it is going to be very hard. So we do have to do this incrementally. Um, 
But I think ultimately we need to go down the path of digitization. Um, we were talking about costs before. So you know, the cost of doing, of just replacing existing post-trade services with brand new blockchain-based post-trade services doesn't really seem worth it to me unless, I, I think we need to go that extra step towards the, uh, the digitization. Just one, one more thing to that, to that point. Um, post-trade's kind of the low-hanging fruit in financial markets. It's, it's the easy intellectual argument, right? It's, it takes T plus three to settle an equity trade. You know, doing clearing and settlement across multiple markets takes time. It's friction-filled. Um, I don't think that's the most intriguing of the use cases. I, I think if you look at the fundamental plumbing of how banks do what they do or Wall Street and exchanges do what they do, there's massive amounts of data, reference data, pricing data, um, you know, content and rights management, how things are even labeled in financial markets is really based on just old technology. Um, and all of that old technology is subject to reconciliations. So if you look at the largest exchanges, most of them don't make their money trading. Most of them make their money selling data. And how they sell data is really error prone. Um, so I think there are a lot of the non-sexy things that'll be the real use cases um, for distributed ledger over time. It'll be an evolution. So can we quantify this? this? So <clears throat> it's clear that there are opportunities here. Uh, but can we quantify what it means for the industry and come up with an understanding f for, the, for the finance industry and, the, uh, and asset management and, and, and all the rest of that stuff? Um, <laughs> Wall Street, basically. And, uh, and can, we can we come up with an actual number that we can attach to that to see the magnitude of, this, uh, of the advantage that can be achieved? If you could come up with that number, I've got several people who would hire you. I have, <laughs> I have a number. You have a number? The post trade is estimated at 60 billion a year. 60 billion, 60 billion a year. Post trade. Exactly. Well, just the entire post trade. Another way just to look at it. Just the fees. Just the fees. As I was say, another way to look at it is look at the settlement cycle and, and look at the capital that's tied up across the settlement cycle. Um, I don't even know how much trades have per day. Two, I think 250 billion per day in U.S. equities um, across a three-day settlement cycle. You reduce the cost of capital there. There's a significant saving for banks who currently have an internal uh, cost of capital charge of 10%. So somebody can do the math offline. But there are ways to quantify parts, parts of the equation. Actually, so to that point exactly, this is going to be a leap, but I'm going to come full circle. So I've been doing a lot of work on healthcare uh, and revenue cycle management. Uh, for example, hospitals take 80 days to collect roughly uh, on uninsured patients and 40 days on insured patients. If you run that time value of money calculation just for hospitals and healthcare, uh, it, it comes out to roughly $20 billion is wasted just for hospitals. And then you think, okay, well, Healthcare is about 20% of the U.S. GDP, um, and I think hospitals are a third of that 20%. So within healthcare, let's say time value of money is $60 billion, but that's only 20% of U.S. GDP. So then right there you're at $300 billion, uh, just tied up in the time value money of U.S. GDP. Um, that's very rough, but like, that's the, the order of magnitude scale that we're, we're thinking about here. So, uh, any more on that, that track? Uh, so, 
what I was going to say something. I, I'll keep on coming back to the asset manager side of things because it doesn't yeah. really get that much play, I think, within the blockchain space. You think about the cryptocurrency markets right now, they're like a spec, if, if you really think about it in the grand scheme of the capital markets. Um, and so while people talk about, oh, Ether's gone 10x this year, um, like it potentially still has a lot of headroom, like a lot, a lot. I think we all know that here. Um, and so when you look at the markets uh, that these cryptocurrencies are, you know, eating into, um, that's where, you know, the analogy of, I think, we're in the early 90s of the internet doesn't even apply. It's like we're in the mid to late 80s. So I just want to jump back to the cost real quickly. So the 60 billion number is really interesting, right? Because that's fees collected. Now, but keep in mind, the actual cost profile to do some of the clearing and settlement that they do is still difficult for them to understand. If you walk into any major broker dealer and said, what's the all-in cost to, to clear a trade? I bet you they'd struggle to tell you. And so then understanding what's the economic benefit of them using blockchain to change that, it's not enough to say, well, it's, it's, fr it's almost fee-free. It's, it's easy. It's blockchain. That's, that's not the answer they need. That'll sell it internally. And capital, capital requirements as well. Agreed. So it frees up capital requirements that don't need to be held because of that claim. Absolutely agree with you. But they need to understand the dynamics of what their cost, cost profile is to do that across multiple assets. Because then you get to a number that says, you can save X and free up capital of Y if you do this right. And it makes them ask, how do, how do we do it right? So where are we on the adoption cycle? I think we're in the 80s, according to Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah right. I got my ColecoVision powering up right now. But prior to, prior to, I mean, geez, like, was anything happening at the start of last year? Like, in, in two years, how far have we come? So I'd say we, when I kind of got into this space, you know, two, two years, eight, or maybe 18 months ago, um, people were saying, oh, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be like 10, 20 years before you get full adoption. Um, Grand Associates had done a survey. This, is, this was earlier this year. And um, we were asking people, when do you think blockchain will enable meaningful change in one use case. Um, and 80% of people said within two years. The, and these are people who work in finance in, in the blockchain space. Um, and I've heard similar stuff since then. And um, so it, it, it's happening much quicker than I think people initially thought. I think maybe people are a little too optimistic at this point. But we were just talking earlier on about there's, a, there's the ASX in Australia, which is working with digital asset holdings to kind of replace, initially starting with the post-trade workflow, and then I think it's going to be the dematerialization and the full digitization of assets. Um, but they have a drop-dead date. They, they're replacing their technology stack, and, they, and digital asset holdings needs to have a product ready for it. And I, I can't remember what date it is, 2017, 2018. It's coming. It's coming. Yeah, so, yeah, so I think um, there's still some hype, but I think in general we're coming down from the hype cycle, and we're in the, okay, let's try to build something meaningful. I think in our enterprise consulting uh, here at Consensus, we kind of talk about it as 2016 is the year of the POC. We have so many firms that are interested in, in understanding and doing a POC. I think next year we'll start to see meaningful production use cases as well coming out of it. So I had the opportunity to give a speech in January of 2015 to a room full of FX traders 
um, who had no flippant idea what I was talking about. Um, but they did ask, when will we see blockchain and digital currencies more part of financial services? And I made this really ham-handed prediction that said, oh, by 2016, you'll probably see some stuff that's out of pilot and proof of concept, which clearly proved wrong. Um, that said, I, I agree with you. Just based on conversations with our members um, at what I'll call that, that sign-off level, um, that within 2017 we'll start seeing the low-hanging fruit be implemented on, a, on an ongoing basis for some of them. Yeah, I, so I agree with uh, what Richard said in terms of the this big rip and replace implementation. The 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 one that sticks out to me is ASX and and digital asset holdings. Um, but then, like when when you look at what's going on in the space, and I also agree with what everyone here has said in terms of the rapid acceleration. Because uh, you think about it, like late 2013, uh, Bitcoin hit $1,242, right? Everyone said, oh my God, what's Bitcoin? And then 2014, it looked like it was experiencing a long, slow death. Ethereum, I think Vitalik announced it January of 2014, right? Ethereum didn't launch until last summer. Um, and now look at everything that's going on in, in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and, I, and, and so that, I think, is a testament to how quickly things have moved. And the other thing is, like, you look at the earnings calls of some of these big incumbents. Like, Bank of New York Mellon is, is getting questions about blockchain technology disintermediating them. Like, these things are maybe not quite getting priced into their stocks, but, like, that idea is coming. Sorry, one last thing. So Chris and I speak a lot. And it's always this kind of dichotomy between blockchain as the technology is going to fix parts of Wall Street and digital currencies as tradable things. I think that tempo is shifting as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of the, the requests for information that we kind of get, the discussions we have, are from very, really large investment houses trying to understand how to leverage digital currencies as part of a portfolio. That would not have been a conversation we had a year ago. Mm -hmm. So actually riffing on that, public and private blockchain. Ah. I mean, that is, that's the biggest question, right? I mean, private blockchain, shared database, whatever. but. A, the public blockchain consensus among parties that have no understanding of the nature of one another and just have this single source or the single avenue through which they can interact along, uh, along very closed and strictly uh, predefined lines. What is the, uh, what's happening there? What is the significance of that? You've asked my favorite question, <laughs> the, the debate between public and private. Get comfortable, people. Uh, I'll, I'll try and make it brief. I, I, I guess when uh, you think about it from this idea of history doesn't repeat, it rhymes, right? Um, and you go to what happened with the Internet. Um, well, prior to the Internet, you had AT&T had a monopoly on things, right? And it was pretty much impossible to unseat that monopoly. Like, you couldn't even hook up things to uh, their network, right? It was illegal. Um, and then when, you know, the, the uh, anarchists at that time, right, um, started finding ways to propagate the Internet, um, you, you initially had people saying, well, you couldn't possibly trust a public network. Like, what's going to happen there? Um, and so we all know how that, you know, progressed. Look at AOL versus Amazon or, or whatever it may be. Um, and then we saw the same thing with cloud. Uh, you know, you, you had people saying, oh, you could never use the public cloud. Um, you, you couldn't trust it. It's 
faulty cybersecurity, blah, blah, blah. And now you have GE is in the midst of migrating 90% of its workload uh, into the public cloud. And I think that right now the the consensus narrative is very strong within Wall Street of these are going to be permissioned blockchains um, for the, the vast majority um, because you know you can possibly trust a public network. And it's, it's the same narrative. And the defense is, well, this is a much more regulated industry um, than prior industries. But like AT&T at, at the time was, I mean, had, had a, a, a death lock on, on their industry. So I think you know, longer term, the true power lies in permissionless blockchains. Um, I think that the interim implementations are going to be a lot of these permissioned uh, implementations. I'll, um, I'll agree with you that the, the, the drumbeat within banks is very, very against permissionless blockchains. They do not want to go near it. They're scared. Um, that anything that, that they're scared about the, 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 the verifying nodes being bad actors. Um, and the banks have internal compliance departments, and you know we, we saw HSBC got fined billions of dollars a couple of years ago for money laundering problems, and they're just terrified that one of these nodes in a permissionless blockchain could be ISIS or you know the Iranian government or whoever, and then the CFTC is going to come down and give them a big fine. They're terrified of it, and I don't know what your time frame is, but I really don't see it happening. Any, not very soon at all. Like maybe in ten years, that something else will change in the market. But given what we have now, it's not going to happen. And, but I love. And you, you, you did do a tremendous. I just I read the uh, the paper um, that you produced after um, interviewing 130 different blockchain companies. Well, 130 participants in the blockchain industry. So it was a combination of exchanges, banks, brokers, CCPs blockchain companies and other technology vendors, yeah. I'll jump in. So my product at, that we're building at Fura is a public Ethereum uh, endpoint project. We're getting 30 million requests a day, so clearly my bias is towards public uh, permissionless blockchains. Um, I do think that the, the, there's the fear, and I think that what that is is it's, there's limitations in the technology on the public chain at the moment, uh, such as uh, throughput, such as uh, scalability, such as privacy. So I believe that probably as some of those things start to get addressed as this technology gets more mature, and we've got to remember, as, as Chris said, the Ethereum blockchain has been alive for a little over a year. Bitcoin's been alive for eight years. So imagine when Ethereum uh, as a chain, as a protocol, gets as, as mature, assuming they're able to continue to innovate and get things done, which, is, which the Bitcoin network hasn't been able to do of, of recent uh, years. So I believe that as they're able to start to address some of these concerns that they have, uh, that it might become more palatable uh, and more cost-effective to trust a, uh, a network of that hash rate versus uh, trying to recreate these networks internally. Just, just want to follow up on one thing that uh, Richard said. Um, there's this kind of perception that incumbents in marketplaces don't want the technology to succeed. I can tell you that in the conversations we have, that's, that's really not the case. They're just terrified that it goes wrong and, and absolutely annihilates certain business models. Um, so I think the, the mind shift, the mindset of banks don't want blockchain and, and decentralization to work because it disintermediates them, that, that'll be a multi-decade thing if that happens. 
but it's the fear of it going wrong more than the fear of it going right that they're struggling with. Can I get the last word? Of course. Come um, on. <laughs> so, so, so I agree um, we're a long way from uh, permissionless, from Wall Street at large accepting permissionless uh, implementations. For example, I was at um, Cities Blockchain Unbundled this afternoon, and um, Chain was saying, you know, they, they basically haven't had a single uh, financial institution ask them anything about a permissionless uh, implementation. And you look at what happened to all of the, the Bitcoin companies, like uh, the, there was a really funny tweet that came out that said, you know, fintech companies started off wanting to disrupt banks, now they work for them. Um, and I think that that's true because the money right now is in the permissioned environment. And uh, it is this uh, ethos change. I think it'll be partially driven by millennials. Uh, millennials, you know, that like the transparency, the digital nature of things. Like, there's a cultural shift. There's always a cultural shift going on, right? And I think people underestimate the strength of a cultural shift, which works its way into the regulatory scheme, into the technological scheme. So we're a ways out, but, you know, by the time I'm an old man, I think we'll have lots of permissionless banking implementations. Awesome. Well, uh, when you're an old man, would you like everybody to know your investment portfolio? I just, I don't understand this parallel from millennials. Do you want to come up and grab a seat and grab the mic? <laughs> Welcome our new panelist, everyone. <laughs> oh, I mean, there are fundamental questions of, uh, you know, confidential uh, uh, financial uh, um, conscience, mm -hmm. right? Like, you can't really say that, you know, uh, we don't have, <clears throat> we don't use permissionless uh, blockchains because, uh, you know, millennials are not in power yet. There are fundamental differences, right? You can't really, you know, expose your contract to everybody in the world, right? That's why permission blockchains exist. It's just it's that simple. So I think this is why people are so excited about Zcash or baby Zoe, I think, uh, w within Ethereum. Um, because, you know, this idea of ZK snarks and the idea of selective privacy on permissionless blockchains is really powerful. And for me, you know, once you can have selective privacy on a permissionless blockchain, you can have a somewhat permissioned environment within a permissionless ecosystem. Like, permissioned uh, is a subset of permissionless, but you can't go the other way around. And so, and, and where I think ZK snarks actually get really interesting is for identity. You know, like, uh, let's say I don't want people to know who this person is holding these assets, then I can obfuscate my identity in that way. Again, I think, you know, the computational inefficiency of ZK snarks, right? Uh, right now, uh, it's, it's untenable to try and do it. But again, uh, Kathy, the, the CEO of my firm, always talks about declining cost curves, increasing unit productivity, advanced technology. And so I think that I see the building blocks for it. It's just a matter of time. I'll just say the, the, the anonymity part of Zcash is, um, it appeals very much so to Wall Street. Um, they're moving in a direction of zero knowledge proofs. They don't want, uh, like Bitcoin is a, is a has a transaction history. They don't really want that transaction history they, on, on the permission blockchains. They don't want, JP Morgan doesn't want Morgan Stanley seeing what they just traded and at, and at what price. So the zero knowledge proof is happening but the anonymity part, that, that's, the, that, that's not what they don't like. Anyone else? Yeah. There must be someone there, yeah. Uh, from uh, a newbie, just, uh, okay, six 
Thanks. Oh, all right. So for for a newbie, um, when he when he talks about being worried about maybe transactions or assets um, on the public cloud, is am, am I correct in thinking it's not <clears throat> if somebody had their transactions out there, it wouldn't be completely open to anybody immediately. They would have to do a little bit of work to try to decode it and figure out that it's you almost the way somebody can figure out certain things about me on, on Facebook or me, even though it doesn't exactly say my name right away for the general public? Yeah, I mean, that's correct. There's some degree of uh, investigation you would need to do to kind of translate this public key into a, an individual. Uh, but there's firms that, that do that today, and, and the NSA can clearly do that. So the, you shouldn't assume that uh, just because your identity is a public key that uh, that you have that anonymity. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of the point I mentioned before. I think uh, the ZK snarks, that's uh, the Zcash, I think the technology will evolve to enable uh, privacy where needed. I know JP Morgan has got their initiative going on with the Ethereum fork that they're doing that it includes a layer of privacy before it gets to chain. So I think there's a lot of different efforts going on to address that anonymity. said uh, permissioned within side of a permissionless transaction does that mean permissioned blockchain within a permission or sorry a permissionless blockchain within a permissioned network or trading mechanism so the 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 inverse like I guess my point was you can start with a permissionless environment and run permissioned transactions with it within it essentially with a zk snark right you're obfuscating everything within that transaction and so if you think about it let's say you have a network of four banks that are only running let's say we're ethereum 10 years down the road right and are only running baby zoe transactions right uh, then you essentially have a permissioned network within uh, a larger permissionless implementation whereas you can't go the reverse you can't go permissioned and then put permissionless within it um, because you don't have a basis of trust and transparency to begin with. Aren't you, aren't you just making a security vulnerability that permissioned network? I mean, because it's, it's the blockchain is permissionless and totally impervious. It then just moves it up the line and all of a sudden now they just attack there. Well, so with, like, within, if, if you're working within a permissionless network, right, the, that network is, it's an adversarial network, right? It's operating under, under the assumption it could get attacked at any time. Um, and then if you're, uh, again, I'm gonna stick with this idea of Zcash on Ethereum, because um, it fits for where we are, um, and you're obfuscating certain transactions using ZK snarks, um, then my understanding is, you know, you're protected by the hash power of the entire permissionless network, and it's just this one type of transaction that's a different kind of transaction. I mean, Bitcoin has all different kinds of transactions right now, but it's still protected by the security of the entire network. So ZK Snarks is somehow based upon the permission? It's within, yeah, within the Ethereum network. Down the road. I think it's the general direction in um, architecting both permissions, uh, permissioned and permissionless uh, uh, blockchains. For example, in Hyperledger or in R3 Corda, the new architecture would allow you to specify which nodes will be able to decrypt your contract and run it. So in a way, 
you have a huge uh, um, network of nodes that maintain this con uh, consensus, maintain uh, the ledger. Yet within it, you have sub-nodes that are permissioned by you to decrypt your contract and run it. In a way, yes, it, it is sort of like a, you can have it permissionless, and within it, you can have sub-networks uh, uh, sub uh, um, um, sub pertaining to a specific case. Uh, hi there. Yeah, question regarding, you know, the terminology of permission, permissionless, all this sort of thing. When I see projects in which uh, you take the blockchain, okay, I understand that part, and now I'm going to uh, put it on a private server, permission, at some point I think, wait a minute, that, I could do that with an Oracle database, you know. So is there some kind of test at which, if I, you know, if I take a giraffe, I keep changing it around, now it's, it's, a, it's a pig now. You know, at what point do I stop calling this thing a blockchain? Because uh, I see a lot of projects like that. Once I understand, it's, it's, it's a different animal. Is there a test that you guys can do to say, no, that's not a blockchain anymore? I, I think it comes, comes down to digitization. And the, the blockchain part is about the transfer of value. Um, uh, and and that, that, in my opinion, that's where the, it becomes a blockchain as opposed to just a database. <coughs> You, 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 can't, you can't transfer an asset from one party to another in an Oracle database. Ma mathematical verifiability, yeah. right? Cryptographic verifiability is the fundamental, uh, is the fundamental like, you know, special source that makes a, uh, an, a permissioned blockchain special in the absence of, uh, of consensus, right? When you have distrustful, distrustful parties, then it becomes a blockchain. No, but if you have parties... Trust, you know, if you have a central control, there's no central control. No, but I mean, I mean, like you've got consensus, and then you've got the then you've got cryptographic verifiability, right? So, if you're in a permission blockchain where you you sort of have you know this acknowledgement of general trust, right? Um. So, so, so I've got a general definition that I've used. It doesn't hold for everything, um, but it's cryptographically secured, distributed, and immutable. Um, but there are exceptions to all of those that you know you would still think of as blockchains. I think what you just said, Arthur, in terms of this distributed idea, that's, that's the kernel of truth for me, this idea that we can all hold the same version of the truth within our respective uh, databases at the same time, and no one person can go and change that. That, that for me, is like the, the kernel of differentiation from the Oracle database. Because when you think about like, the history of relational database management systems, they actually sucked. Like, re relational databases were slower at everything that they did, but they had this one cool thing, and that was that you could query them right uh, after the fact. And blockchains are kind of like similar, right? It's like, god, they suck at a bunch of things that like, traditional databases are good at, but they have this one really cool feature, and that is that they, they, they have a distributed and somewhat immutable version of the truth. Were you guys at the the Don um, uh, Don Tapscott? Yeah, Tapscott. When you were at that talk, somebody brought up well, somebody brought up transactions, right? So like traditional relational databases, you could do rollbacks, right? You could do a transaction, wrap a bunch of statements. Now, does blockchain support transactions? And I think at that talk, somebody mentioned that their platform actually was supporting transactions. So I just thought I'd raise that point. 
Um, well, so <laughs> I'm happy to answer it, but I mean, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I if you talk, you, you mentioned rollbacks. Um, there is. So there, there's a company called Accenture has come out with. Uh, they've I don't know what they modified. They're they're certainly advocating that blockchains aren't immutable and that mistakes happen and they need to be undone. Um, but I'm not familiar with the talk. Well, Tezos. It probably would have been Tezos, right? Tezos is all about uh, the ability to roll back uh, undesirable transactions, yeah. so that you don't have. I mean, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to actually mention the event itself. It's yeah. been <laughs> it's, it's been run into the ground. But uh, a question I had: Were you asking also more generally, like, do blockchains propagate transactions, or? Well, more, more so if they could roll them back and if there is a use case for that. Okay. Yeah, Accenture is the one. But it sounds like it breaks the tenet of really what the whole blockchain is about, right? It's immutable, right? So well, if, if everybody agreed to this transaction, can it be committed? Yeah. Then everybody will need to agree to amend this transaction and <coughs> move your ledger and introduce changes. That will be, you know, another addition to the ledger. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with that. Right? Another thing is transaction um, isolation or atomicity of transaction. And more, most modern products support it. So basically, if everything breaks within your code for smart contract, of course, you won't be able to connect it, just like everybody else. One thing interesting, I would say, to this point is the light, Bitcoin's Lightning Network or with Ethereum state channels. In a way, that's like um, that's a way you can use a blockchain um, and uh, you're not changing the, the transaction, uh, but you can change the balance, right, with the, uh, within the parties without writing it immutably into the blockchain. So, like, that's kind of w one way that I could think of doing it within within the space. I, like I, say, I think the immutability and the, the, the not rolling back transactions, not undoing stuff, having a full transaction history has tremendous value for regulators and so forth. Who, um, there's an effort in the equities market, you may have heard of it, called the Consolidated Audit Trail, where they're trying to build something that has a complete record of everyone's transactions so that they can figure out what the hell happened on May 6, 2010 or the next May 6, 2010, which is the flash crash. Um, so, if you, if you, so that, I think, has tremendous value, the, the immutability part. You kind of get that for free. And I think you mentioned as well batch, batching transactions. Uh, I think, at least in the Ethereum blockchain, there's, there's a state transition from block to block, and all of the nodes have to agree on the, on the correct sequencing, so there's really a serialization of all of these transactions so that you can replay them from Genesis if you need to, to kind of go back through the Merkle route to verify... Uh, if transaction A happened before B, et cetera. So at least in the Ethereum blockchain, that's a feature of, you know, everyone has to agree on the exact order of transactions, and so you can't really batch them up uh, and, and have each node decide which order the transactions get, get, get played to the network. Anyone else? No? Well, oh, one more. I was going to add that uh, using the mempool is going to give you the idea of being able to roll back transactions because they're already stored in memory. So, you know, before you actually commit, like in a regular database, you know, you commit your data. Um, at that point, it's written out to the database. But you could roll it back before that happens by storing information in the mempool. Like the way, one way that the double spending is done is that uh, if, let's say, I receive a transaction uh, at T0, and then at T1, I receive the same transaction to spend that, that amount, Normally, Bitcoin just drops the second 
second transaction. So in a way, it's almost like doing a, a rollback, um, not of the entire transaction, but it's, you know, maybe just dropping that event. Actually, in fact, what will happen is some nodes will believe that that's the right transaction, will start to mine on that chain, and then they'll realize that they're on a wrong chain and they'll well, it, reject it and then it they'll be the reverse for some nodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you, and then you're competing to see who finds the block with which transaction, well, which is a roll of the dice. this chain, then you actually really have a, a rollback of, of the shorter chain. So, in a way, you do have uh, sort of rollbacks. All right, well, I think that was a... Okay, one more, Catherine, <laughs> one more. Uh, thank you, everyone. I think it's very hard to get all the Wall Street people here. And uh, I have a question about the regulation stuff, because... We know, like Wall Street, uh, the financial institutions work for kind of. There's a lot of SEC regulations, so I'm wondering if do you think SEC will kind of push the blockchain innovation because you know they can be very transparent, so SEC will be very happy. And do you think they will push the innovation or what? Yeah, because what kind of conversation you have with SEC stuff? Thanks. Yeah, so we have fairly regular conversations um, with the regulators, particularly, um, and they're very much looking at it as a, as a differentiator that makes their job easier. They're, 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 it started with the regulators looking at it and thinking, all the crap we had to deal with three, four years ago, and you're all hackers and it's all Mt. Cox and you all suck. Um, but now they're looking at it from the perspective of if the technology makes sense and it makes compliance with those regulations easier, then then that's something they want to support. I think the biggest challenge for regulators, and it's beginning to change, but the biggest challenge for regulators is, uh, like for a lot of people on, on the street, is, is knowledge and education and understanding. There's still so much out there. Most of our members, Zcash is something that crossed their radar yesterday, and I've gotten 14 phone calls about what does it mean. Um, but the regulators are participating now from the perspective of if it's an innovation worth using to make the the industry more compliant, then that's what they'll support. But I think like right now, there's like financial institutions are you know uh, running like ahead of SEC because because like, I didn't see them do anything. The SEC. Mm-hmm. So there there are so you brought up ICO earlier, and and I um I was in a meeting with an SEC attorney about a month ago, and someone said ICO. And, and it just went south from there. Um, so there are still risks, um, politely put. Um, but but I, I think, again, it, it, they want, the regulators want to be perceived as not being the roadblock to innovation. Right. So there's a lot of regulators, right, within, within Wall Street. And the SEC is dealing specifically with securities, right? So as an investment manager, it's someone that we, we think about a lot. Um, and I think with how it relates, you know, to this idea of um, cryptocurrencies and ICOs, part of it's a matter of messaging. Like, I, I do think the term ICO needs to go away, and we need to find a better one. What about token launch? Token launch, yeah, way better. Token party. <laughs> Even better. So, so and, and I mean, that's potentially something that consensus could lead, right? Like, uh, it's hard to rebrand the uh, cultural inertia of terms, and it needs to be something that's done early on. Um, and so I think ICO is, is, is particularly dangerous, both because of the term, but then also 
what the SEC always looks at is this idea of a Howey test um, for, you know, how do you uh, uh, classify something as a security. And it goes back to orange groves. And I... I we You're really talk, going to go down we, the road of the orange we, groves? Arthur wants to wrap this up, so we'll talk about it afterwards. Um, but people need to be very careful um, in terms of how they raise money on the blockchain. And there's a lot of work going around it to, to safely do it. And so I'm comforted knowing that that work's going in. But uh, in the interim, uh, you know, if you're going to do a token party, um, consult with your lawyer first. <laughs> yeah, just to substantiate. We have a lot of folks that come to us and, and um, that are startups talking about doing an offering. If you're planning an offering and you haven't had a conversation with an attorney, I guarantee you you're going to get a phone call you're not going to like. Have a conversation with an attorney about it. Always talk to a lawyer. Yeah, that's why they make the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you might be. Okay, Chris, Michael, Richard, Ron, thanks for joining us all today. It's been extremely enlightening. And thanks, guys. It's been Thank awesome. you. Great audience. Yeah, great assist. Dude.